welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. My co-host Joe Weisenthal is away this week. I've actually noticed a pattern to Joe's absences, which is that he suspiciously goes missing whenever we're scheduled to talk about negative rates on the show. In any case, uh, we recently had the annual gathering of monetary policymakers in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And as you can imagine, negative interest rates were a big feature of that meeting. And in fact, the title for this year's symposium was Challenges for Monetary Policy, which kind of gives you an idea of the headspace that a lot of central bankers are operating in at the moment. But one of the most interesting things to come out of Jackson Hole this year, certainly a thing that got a lot of attention, was a speech by Bank of England Governor Mark Carney where he talked about the idea of getting rid of the dollar as a reserve currency and basically replacing it with a virtual currency that would look a lot like Facebook's Libra in the sense that it could be a sort of consortium of digital currencies maintained by central banks, a multipolar virtual currency. He actually called it a synthetic hegemonic currency or SHC for short. Now, Carney's idea did raise a lot of eyebrows, not least because central banks have been critics of cryptocurrencies in general and of Libra in particular. So I thought to myself, who better to help us gain more insight into Carney's thinking and to also talk to us about negative rates and the future of payments and the future of all of finance, in fact, than Hugh Van Steenis. Hugh chaired a review of the future of finance for Mark Carney and was his senior advisor at the BOE. He'll also be shortly joining UBS as an advisor to their CEO. And he's taking a break from his gardening leave to come on Odd Lots. Hugh, it's so good to have you. Tracy, thanks so much for having me. Uh, so I guess we need to start with Carney's Jackson Hole speech. Uh, we do know that Carney is due to leave the BOE in a few months. So I guess my question is, since you are someone who worked quite closely with him, how seriously should we take his proposal for this uh, sort of multipolar virtual currency? Well, look, I mean, I'm going to speak for myself here rather than for, for, for Mark. I mean, I thought it was a really great speech because it put its finger on a number of the dilemmas that policymakers are wrestling with. I mean, first, let's, let's be clear, technology is transforming the basis of advantage in financial services and big techs are entering, fintechs are playing, scale is far more important, and the regulations need to catch up. So I think first and foremost, it's about the way technology is transforming the system. Mm. I think second is that payments is the battleground uh, between big tech, payments firms, and banks. And it's kind of existential. And as you've pointed out regularly, Tracy, the combination of negative rates and a disruptive environment is one which is you know, an existential threat for, for banks. And I think the challenge for firms entering payments, Libra, Facebook is just the first of which, uh, re most recent of which, is pretty challenging. And I think that one pushback that some had is that, you know, this was a little bit you know, right out there in terms of forward thinking. But one question I often got challenged is what can we learn from the, the Chinese financial system? Is it just the Galapagos of the financial world? And I think it's not science fiction. I mean, there you've got Ant Financial and um, WeChat Pay controlling 90% of online payments. And Ant Financial now has got the most customers of any financial services firm in the world. If you can combine what they've got in China and India, it's over a billion, five times Citigroup. So I think that this payments, both in terms of currency 
and in terms of new entrants being the battleground, I think he's put his finger on something really important. Right. And China has actually announced that it is close to releasing its own cryptocurrency, whether or not that's going to be an actual cryptocurrency or something that's more akin to digital cash. Uh, we don't know just yet. But but definitely there seems to be um, some interest from some central banks, at least in uh, virtual currencies. So just on the notion of payments, uh, you know, you've said before, and you just said it then, that payments are now the battleground. Can you expand on that a little bit? Why is there so much pressure around this particular space? In financial services, particularly low rates, there are not that many areas which have got strong growth. And payments clearly is one where people are moving offline to online. I mean, one thing that we unearthed in our report was that, let's take Sweden, we've had an 80% reduction in cash transactions in the last decade. The UK is probably four or five years behind that. The US is probably another four or five years behind that. There is a very long tailwind of shifting commerce online, and everyone wants to be the gateway into the online uh, commercial world. So I think that's one key aspect around payments. I think second is these person-to-person um, -person apps, whether it's you know Ali in Pay in uh, China, whether it's um, Swish in Sweden, whether it's Ideal in Holland, these are sort of category killers. You know, they really munch through cash and are provide convenience and flexibility for customers, which, you know, customers are quite frankly lapping up. So I think there's that transformation. But I think the big thing for a financial regulator and a particular central bank where, you know, money is what it's all about, is the role of big techs either becoming a, a, a toll road that they just want to be the toll which people get into the commercial world, but potentially becoming much bigger in financial services. And that with their advantages of scale, with other related businesses, and quite frankly, a, a way of thinking which is very different from financial services. So if you take the Libra white paper, plus all the other papers they put out on that day, you know, there's over 80 pages on the tech. There's just under a dozen pages on the way the syndicate work. There's not a single page on regulation. Right. And I think that's really atypical. Uh, and I think that's something which that means it's really difficult for a traditional policymaker regulator to get their heads around because there's just nothing there. Well, I was going to ask you, the fact that a lot of these tech companies have made such massive inroads into payments so quickly, is that actually down to the tech or is it down to regulatory arbitrage in the sense that they are not hindered in the same way that banks are? I, I think there's an element of uh, an unlevel playing field. Uh, where they are are coming in a, on a different basis. But it doesn't have to be that the big techs win. I mean, just go back to Sweden. Swish is a bank consortium app which allows anyone to pay with anyone. So you need to get over the hurdle of antitrust about how banks collaborate with each other. But there's a, a, a country where actually it wasn't the big techs who drove the innovation. So I think this is much more about do the banks have the budget? Do they have the ability to respond? And, I, and of course, going back to one of your favourite topics, in a world of negative rates, bank profitability is pinched. Mm. And as a result of that, they just don't have the tech budgets that some of these other firms have. And I think the other bit um, is that, you know, I mean, I met with over 300 entrepreneurs and fintech companies for the review I did for the governor. They have a very different profit motivation. They can withstand losses for three, five more years. There's not a single bank which can really uh, do that for, for a five-year basis. So they just start with a very different basis of competition. I do want to ask you about regulating uh, payments companies. But before I do, you've mentioned China several times as being very ahead in the payment space. Um, 
we have things like Alipay and, and WeChat over here. How did they get to that place? Because a lot of people would call them a sort of special case in, in the wider evolution of technology and financial technology in particular. I think it's a really important exam question to think about what we can understand and what may um, be borrowed from other markets and what's what's different. So first is the payment firms are really pump primed by a, a big tech firm. So whether it's Ali with um, Ant Financial or WeChat with WeChat Pay, they use their existing clientele and network effects to hugely to their advantage. I think second is though they really did offer phenomenal promotions to get acceptances. So in one case, they offered taxi drivers in, in Beijing a premium if clients paid with Alipay and also gave the clients a discount if they paid. So they were really smart about discounting and, and generating client interest. And then, and the third, of course, is maybe what is different is they've got a whole financial supermarket. Now, in most Western regulatory structures, different regulators have, have have purchased on different parts of the financial system. And so you've got one financial supermarket, which is a bit different. The other area which is, is different to China is identification. There is an element that everyone is identified. And one of the big issues that everyone's wrestling with in the West is how you can make, how you reduce fraud and how you make sure you know who your client is. And actually some of the emerging markets probably have leapfrogged uh, the West on, on this. And maybe, and, and obviously quite frankly, have a different sense of um, you know libertarian values about what the state should or shouldn't know about you. Right. Uh, so how much of the China example would be replicable in, for instance, the UK or the US? Well, I think so first, you've already got some pretty strong competitors. And I love um, Alex Rampel at A16Z has got a great line that um, uh, the, the quintessential debate between an incumbent and a new entrant is does the new entrant get distribution? before the incumbent gets innovation. Mm. And I think that battle is really about, you know, what China uh, shows us is that the new entrant got distribution incredibly quickly. And I think you know, as you look into the States, you've got some pretty serious payment firms, Visa, MasterCard, Amex, uh, PayPal, as well as some of the, the key banks, JP Morgan and so forth, which have got really big positions in payments already. I think, too, very few big techs want to have the hassle of bank and payments regulation and all the capital that goes with that. So most of the firms so far have tried to be a wallet or, or, or a toll road on the back of the existing banking system. But you know, what I think we could see is that over a period of time, these firms could uh, grow broader and deeper. And many of the financial fintechs that I met have ambitions for, you know, quite frankly, world domination. And I think, therefore, it's about making sure that the banks and the payment firms respond, you know, and really understand that existential challenge is pretty real. Right. So as these tech firms potentially grow bigger and encroach ever more on the uh, financial space, and, and to your earlier point, what are the challenges posed by that for central bankers? How are they exactly supposed to respond to this new group of financial intermediaries? So there's a couple of uh, things, and, and it does vary country by country. So first is around innovation. Most geographies want to encourage innovation of new firms. But in many jurisdictions, you've got a concept of a, a startup, or you've got a systemic financial payments firm, and very little in between. 
And so as I was struck that the Singaporeans um, in the last year injected a new third category saying, actually, if you've got half a million and billion customers, we need to deal with you with a, in a different way. And so payment regulation has to probably uh, be updated to reflect that these are now very large firms, which may not yet be systemic, but whose failure would be pretty brutal um, for the system. I think second is uh, around what it means for the banking system. Are you skimming off the cream of profits for banks and leaving them just simply as dumb pipes, in the words of one of my uh, colleagues um, who, who, who looks at this space? Or maybe even, maybe not dumb pipes, that's unfair, high-cost due diligence machines, but, but <laughs> nonetheless not very profitable. I think that's worse. Well, yeah, I think that is. And I think that, but that, that it is interesting that quite a few of the payments firms are trying to rely on the know-your-customer checks that the banks do and then they don't get rewarded for it. And so there is, to be honest, a slight unlevel playing field between payment firms and banks in most, but let's be honest, not all jurisdictions. But the third thing, Tracy, though, is coming back to actually who's being left behind. And I know that I was struck by a huge interest in what does the decline of cash mean for those who potentially may be getting left behind, whether it be elderly, uh, disadvantaged or potentially disabled. And if you look at Sweden, where cash has fallen by 80% 80% of the last decade, they started to hit some crunch points. And one thing that I spent some time looking at in the review is how close are we to those crunch points in the UK or in other markets? And what would you do to make sure that there is a minimum or, or even a, a, a viable infrastructure to at least maintain that cash system? And so you end up with some quite out there discussions of should in the long term it be the responsibility of the state or the central bank to keep the cash economy viable. And I think, you know, for many listeners in the States, that sounds like a bit of sci-fi, but it's something which in Norway and Sweden, where less than 10% of transactions are now done with cash, is something which is pretty important. So why exactly do we need cash? So there's a big debate, as always, about what is the right mandate for the central bank. At the moment, it's society's decision how we pay, not the central bank's. And so I think that uh, the Bank of England, like other central banks, takes it as a political decision what the future of cash should be. And if you look at the sort of uh, debates in, in history, I mean, in, in the 19th century, there were some pretty big debates about who had the responsibility to print money. Should you have private sector money or not? Uh, today, we're going to be debating who, how much should there still be cash in the system? I think over the next 10 years, what we're talking about is not cashless, but just increasingly cash light as year by year more payments are done online. But I think it's really a, a political discussion. And if you look in Sweden, it's getting more intense about you know where the politics lie. And I think at the moment, the assumption is there should be some cash to allow people to transact. But you, know, you and I can debate you know, 20 years out what that should be. comes to the sort of value of cash in a society, if, if we go back to the negative rates idea, I mean, negative rates basically make cash uncompetitive, whether it's physical and you're stuffing it under your mattress or whether, you know, you're putting it in, in a bank and it's a sort of digital number. What does that mean for central bankers whose purview is, you know, of course, monetary policy? It's all about the money and cash is uncompetitive. 
So, look, on this, I should really say this is my personal view than the bank's view, but obviously we don't have negative rates in the UK. Uh, when I was Morgan Stanley, I argued vociferously that uh, negative rates were a high-risk experiment. And in particular, that you know most of modern macroeconomics takes the financial system and then assumes it away, just basically ignores banks and intermediaries and their own actions. And I think ignoring that friction comes at a cost. And you can see that uh, the way that negative rates are played out, as you know, you were discussing a few weeks ago, Japanese bank, regional banks are the least profitable in the world and actually have really been sort of supported by clipping coupons as um, government bonds get, got, get revalued. I think that the, the corrosive impact of negative rates on bank profitability is very strong. And I think there's been some, two great new papers, one by uh, Professor Charles Goodhart of the LSE and another, a Norges, Norges Bank um, working paper, both of which you challenge the orthodoxy and say, actually, if you ignore banks and insurers, you do it at your peril, because as you get towards low rates and move into the Alice in Wonderland rule world of negative rates, the credit transmission simply becomes much less effective. And I think that's really something which you know policymakers need to weigh up as we think about confronting the the global uh, slowdown. I certainly, for my vote, would be heartily against any further moves uh, more negative. And I think also what what really struck me during the review is, you know, tech is really important, but also cyber defence. European banks, particularly eurozone banks, are spending almost half the proportion of their tech budgets on digital transformation than their US colleagues. Now, some of that is being subscale, and you know, we can debate whether there should be more M&A in Europe, but some of it is just the lack of profitability and of which negative rates is a, is a key component. So I think it's a, it's a tough experiment. And that's before we go on to you know, people storing cash in deposits and, and, and being disincentivized. So I, I think it a, remains a high risk experiment here three or four years on. But just on this point, this is one thing that I don't understand because central banks must know that banks are important transmitters of monetary policy. So if banks are structurally unprofitable, doesn't that worry the central bank? I think it does. But I think that what you've put your finger on is a, is a key difference between probably the Anglo-Saxon world and, else, and some of the other systems where I think the Anglo-Saxon world firmly believes in a positive interest rate, even if it may be low. I think second is, you know, because macroeconomics have just assumed this away. There is very, very little in the literature that central bankers are relying on to understand how this works. Mm. And I think it's fair to say negative rates work in, in quote, a myriad of ways. You know, they obviously impact uh, net interest income margin for the banks like the top line. But in some cases, as your as markets get revalued up, commission income, the sale of asset and man wealth management products could increase. Low rates clearly have suppressed bad debts, and that's been a key defence of you know ECB and and and, and others in, in support of the policy. But when you really dig deep, it's probably more QE than negative rates who've done that because it's more about tackling the bad debt problems in Spain, Portugal, Greece, Italy, and pr arguably QE would have been more effective than negative rates in suppressing it. But you know, as you and I and your listeners know, that's already priced in. So at this point, you know, low lower bad debts is priced in. It's much more about what the next step is from here. Um, and a, a very unprofitable system is one which is more brittle. And so I, I think that's a, that's definitely a concern. Um, one, you know, Larry Summers recently uh, came up with a, the great um, analogy about black hole economics. The one that I've debated more with a bunch of academics I've been working with is it's more like steroids. 
steroids in short blasts can be very effective in, in repair, but long-term dependency on steroids starts to dissolve your uh, bones and makes the patient more brittle. And maybe negative rates are, are, are more like steroids than, than, than other analogies. So um, just to continue that analogy, if you have banks that are sort of reliant on the steroids of easy monetary policy and we're reaching the limits of that potential monetary policy, and at the same time, payments is a space where you can still make money as a financial intermediary, but you're getting a lot of tech firms encroaching on it. And in the meantime, lending out money doesn't actually earn you uh, any interest. What does that mean for the banking business model? Is there a future for banks in their current form? I, I think there, no, I, I firmly think there is. And I think we go back to this, that it's first technology at one level allows many new entrants, but also provides real scale economies. And in a world where, let's say, large corporates are obsessed, rightly obsessed about their security, their money, the firms who've got the single best cybersecurity should win out. So, so number one, there's a. I think tech is becoming an arms race for the winning financials uh, and, and sorry, winning banks. So, I think that's one aspect which is really important. I think two, what flows from that is scale is more important. And so, it may well be that actually the combination of low rates and tech actually accelerates more M&A, which is, you know, let's be, not, let's be honest, has been somewhat on hold in recent times. And you can see that with a couple of, you know, recent US transactions, which have really been around payments and the tech space. And I think third is, it really will be about becoming a, a low cost manufacturer. And so I think there is going to be relentless hard work for bankers in making sure they've got a lean and a very effective platform because you know throughout my professional career let's take sort of um when i used to sit on an equity trading floor many many years ago uh before we got moved into the research box the you know commissions have gone down through thick and thin double digit year by year and i think that banks have been able to confront that through becoming more efficient and more scaled so i think there's a lot of industrial logic which needs to flow from this, but they'll probably need a bit of luck as well. Is there space for regulation to play a role in this? Could payments companies, big tech companies entering the payment space, could they be regulated like banks? And one of the reasons I ask this is because one of the outcomes of your review was the BOE starting a consultation on opening access to its balance sheet to payment providers, which, you know, is kind of uh, controversial in many ways. Yeah, I mean, so I think the way the, the prism I see this through is is having a level playing field. It's not the job of the bank to, to pick winners or losers, but provide a uh, the, the the infrastructure and set of rules and standards to ensure that there is just a great suite of financial services which are safe and secure for society. So I, I view this much more about the levelling the playing field. So on one hand, if there are some really high quality payment firms who pass you know, some pretty high hurdles of security, uh, cyber security and, and, and resilience, then why shouldn't they potentially have access to park money at the central bank overnight and, and help a foster competition. But the other aspect of a level playing field is the payment firms or the big techs have to be held to the same standards as banks. So whether that be with knowing your customer and anti-money laundering controls, whether it be cybersecurity, whether it be resilience. And that's why uh, the other part of my report was to argue for updating payments regulation. Now, within the UK, that's obviously a role for the government, and they're kind of busy at the moment with other uh, things. I can't imagine what 
but the former chancellor you know did commit the treasury to looking at a updated payments regulation as i said i think what the singaporeans have done of introducing a third category of you know large important payment firms which are held to high standards is at least an intriguing idea which you know many jurisdictions i'm sure must be looking at and the other bit is about reciprocity of data so one of the big challenges is if the banks uh, are asked to share their data with big techs what do they get in return or at least how do they get compensated for that and so a level playing field in inf information is probably just as important as having really high standards so i'm going to ask you a very broad question now for which i ask your forgiveness in advance but when you look a decade into the future what exactly does the financial system look like to you? Who is dominating and how are central bankers responding? Well, look, I have the humility to know that I, I, I thought about to try and think about scenarios because none of us are clever enough to, to be able to forecast the, the, the future. But uh, so let me let me turn it around saying the, the scenarios that I think policymakers really must think through. So one would be that if if we have a two by two of the rate environment and have the degree of disruption, the one where we have negative or low rates and high disruption is very challenging for the banking system. So thinking through what does that mean then for scale, their budgets to respond, what can they be allowed to do in response to these competitive challenges, potentially changing you know, what market shares they can have to try and have more scale. That's something I think is really important to, to weigh up. A second is if big tech, in the scenario where big techs become really important, or at least even fintechs and a much broader range of players are skimming the cream, what standards do we hold them to? Particularly knowing that the network effects are so powerful that when a firm is large, like let's say the Chinese um, payment firms, it's very difficult to row them back. And so, you know, one reason why I think the bank talked about in making sure they want to get ahead of Libra rather than just respond when it's out is to try and think through firms which could become systemic and get further ahead. I think the the other aspect, Tracy, which is slightly more um, you know basic, but I think is really important, which is the central bank needs to have uh, the capabilities and the kind of know-how of the tech world. You know, most central banks around the world are dominated by outstanding public servants who have got PhDs in economics. And I think that's an important skill set, but we need to make sure that they also have much richer understanding of cyber, of technology, and you know the tools. And so, you know, one scenario is that the regulator of the future is more like on the Star Trek Enterprise, you know, with the data coming in automatically to you know uh, screens and understanding, so they can get their finger on the pulse much more quickly in what is quite frankly a complex and challenging world. Right. So was the technology aspect of your research, was that difficult when you were at the BOE? Did you, you know, for instance, have to, uh, I, I guess, tap specific expertise or ask um, specific people to help you on technological issues? Yes. Uh, I mean, I was blessed that everyone was very happy to help out. And so I, I met with over 300 entrepreneurs, techies, CEOs, cyber experts, uh, many other policymakers around the world lent their hand too. So I was able to dig deep. I mean, obviously, I have the humility that even in a year, I could only scratch the surface of some of these important questions. I think that, you know, one thing that I put my finger on is that it's still quite a paper-based world. And so um, if you're sitting there as a regulator, I calculated that the average bank regulator is, is receiving the, the complete works of Shakespeare twice a week in terms of data. Now, 
you simply can't compre comprehend that without modern technology. And if, you know, going back to my life as a research analyst, you need to, to automate feeds, you need to create uh, alert screens, you need to completely rethink the way you, you run with hypotheses uh, and make sure you get the appropriate data. And the other thing is regulation is blooming complex. So the UK rulebook is longer than the complete works of the, of the Old Testament. Mm. And unfortunately, it gets updated regularly. And so, you know, it, this is uh, no one individual can keep on top of that data. So it's not just the regulator. It's the people at the banks themselves who are trying to keep on top of a gargantuan amount of data. So without embracing technology and quite frankly, embracing cloud technology so banks and regulators can communicate their data more cheaply, more effectively, uh, I think is going to be part of the secret source of, of an effective central banker in the future. What was the most interesting part of working at, at the BOE on, on this project? Did you, um, did you go searching for uh, the BOE's gold reserves, for instance? Well, I think I, I mentioned that, uh, um, you know, B Bill Winters, who had previously done a review, said I should get access to the gold vaults on my security pass. Uh, but then I realized that was a joke. And I, when I tried to get mm -hmm. in, there were people with guns. So I'm afraid I never found out how much of the gold G Gordon Brown sold off. <laughs> but no, I think it's um, it was two things. One was we hosted a, a large number of roundtables and to try and keep them, you know, bouncy a bit. You know, we, we had typically, you know, four or five people from the incumbents, four or five attackers, and then a few, you know, clients to ground the conversation so it just didn't become sort of finance babble. And it became really crystal clear to me that some of the fintechs not only are challenging the status quo, they don't even know where some of the rules are. And I think that's a very odd environment for regulators to comprehend and, and therefore, you know, the natural Pavlovian reaction to that is to sort of close up. And yet, you know, the world is developing and is moving at a pace. And so you do need to keep very open and alert and, and engage. And I, I think that was one aspect. I think the second was this sort of international comparisons um, and understanding what we can learn, whether it's from China, from Sweden, from other, other industries about how to respond. And, and certainly was I thought about what the the bank regulator of the future should look like. I was probably spending more time t thinking about data analytics, digitization of data, taxonomies, quite frankly, data science, than I was thinking about you know PhDs in economics. All right, Hugh, I, I think uh, we'll have to leave it there. But thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots. Uh, as you know, I've been following your work for so very long, including when you were a star analyst, really, over at Morgan Stanley. And it's been great to chat with you again. Thanks so much. Thanks. Well, this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway, and you can follow Joe Weisenthal on Twitter at The Stalwart. You can also follow our producer, Laura Carlson, at Laura M. Carlson. And finally, make sure you're following Bloomberg Podcasts on Twitter at Podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>